Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Okay, stop. Ding, (laughs) ding, ding, you can lose your salvation. (laughs) Stop right there. Welcome to another All-American episode of On the Journey with Matt and Ken. I being Matt Swaim, he being Ken Hensley, we being from the Coming Home Network, which if you don't know about us, we're a group of people from every imaginable background, um, Baptists in Ken's case, Methodist Nazarene in mine, who all came into the Catholic faith, and we've been trying to give an yes. account as to why, uh, Ken, over the past several weeks. But lately, we've been giving mostly an account of what we came from and why that was unsatisfactory. So we're going to get into the Catholic case for justification today. And in doing so, I'm going to step back, Jack, and let you begin, Ken. Yes, today is the day in which we begin to turn the tables in this discussion of the um, what was really the material principle of the Reformation, the most important doctrinal issue of the Reformation, that is the, the issue of justification. You and I, Matt, have devoted 11 episodes now to a critique of the Reformation Doctrine of Justification by Legal Imputation, and explaining, um, really in as much detail as I thought I could get away with, okay, 11 episodes, that's enough, um, explaining what led me to abandon this doctrine and to embrace the Catholic teaching. We have concluded, to boil it all down, we've concluded that the Reformation Doctrine of Imputation, which is really the key to understanding the doctrine, that it isn't historical, and that it isn't biblical. And of course, as we've mentioned, these are conclusions that even some Protestant scholars are drawing from the historical and biblical evidence. For instance, Oxford theologian Alistair McGrath, he is the one who described the doctrine, the Reformation doctrine, as a theological novum. He said it was brand new with Luther and Melanchthon, Calvin, and the Reformers, brand new. It was something never raised in 1,500 years of, of Catholic study and teaching, Christian history, never even contemplated. And then we looked at Protestant New Testament scholar Robert Gundry, who has written, and I'm quoting now, the doctrine that Christ's righteousness is imputed to believing sinners needs to be abandoned. The doctrine of imputation is not biblical, still less is it essential to the gospel. Okay, and this is this is where, and we had a similar conversation about sola scriptura, where if you're someone who has held to a specific view of justification and then the wheels come off and the foundations crack and you've seen that not even scripture can defend this thing that you mm-hmm. thought was clearly taught in scripture, you got a couple different options. One is to say, well, maybe I need to go look at different understandings of what justification is. Or if you're a person who's been really messed up and broken by this, you can think to yourself, well, maybe the Bible's not true yeah. and maybe none of this is real and maybe I've been fooling myself and living a lie this whole time. Yeah, and I'll just toss the whole thing. I'll toss imputation. And I know many people who have done that. Yeah. The baby out with the bathwater. Okay, so so we're turning the tables at this point then. If justification is not about the righteousness of Jesus Christ being imputed, being credited, being legally transferred somehow to the account of those who believe, what is it about? What is the Catholic teaching 
of how the benefits of Christ's atoning sacrifice are applied to those who come to faith in Christ. Okay, now, as I've explained in from several different angles in past episodes, as I, a, a Protestant pastor, as I more and more buried myself in the details of the New Testament in preparation for preaching and for teaching every week, the more this doctrine of imputation began to seem to me, Matt, like a wrench that the Reformers had somehow thrown into the theological gears of, the, of biblical theology, creating this inescapable tension, which I, I want to just mention once again, creating this tension for me. Because on the one hand, I found salvation depicted in so many New Testament passages as the reward that one receives at the end of a life of perseverance and faith and obedience of faith. A reward by the grace of God, but depicted as a reward, depicted as an actual path that one must walk and persevere in to the end. He who perseveres to the end will be saved. Then on the other hand, this creating the tension, on the other hand, I I had this conception of justification that I had learned and that I assumed to be true as the legal tra- as a legal transaction that takes place the instant one first believes in Christ it takes place and it's completed at that moment when righteousness is credited to us and so the, this tension of trying to hold these two ideas together on the one hand salvation is this path that we must walk and persevere in on the other hand the whole thing's a done deal from the instant you first believe Holding these two together forced me really into a situation of, um, I would have to say, very unnatural and really unsatisfying interpretations of all kinds of biblical passages. And passages that you'd read a whole bunch and had to figure out, well, if the obvious interpretation of this goes against what I believe, then maybe I have to turn this inside out and find the secret meaning of what Paul's really trying to say, which is different than what it looks like he's actually saying. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A meaning which is just not what it seems like he's saying. A meaning that is like a some kind of a around the merry merry go round or the mulberry bush sort of interpretation. That you either have to know Greek or have to ask John Piper to to secretly explain to you so you can be part of the cool club who knows what Paul's really talking about. Yeah, but okay. In passages like this, Galatians six, eight, and nine. These are passages we've looked at, but but I want those who are listening, especially Protestants who may be listening, just to hear them again. He who sows to the Spirit, St. Paul says, will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary in doing good, for in due season we shall reap this harvest of eternal life if we don't lose heart. Hebrews chapter 3, verses 12 and 14, 12 through 14. Take care, brethren, lest there be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. Okay, so you're close to the living God, you're walking with the living God now, but something might happen that would lead you to fall away. But exhort one another, I'm quoting again now, exhort one another every day, as long as it is still called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we shall share in Christ if only we hold our confidence firm to the end. And then one more, Colossians chapter 1, verses 22 and 23, where St. Paul says, Christ has now reconciled you in his body of flesh by his death. Okay, he's reconciled you in order to present you holy and blameless and irreproachable before him, provided that you continue in the faith, stable, steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel, which you have heard. And there are so many more like these. 
that I was forced into, as I say, unnatural, unsatisfying interpretations of to make them fit with a conception of justification that I had pretty much hardwired into my into my brain and my system of belief. And these are again the reform perspectives that you're putting forth. You know, there are all yeah. kinds of Protestants like myself who, you know, were fearing a backsliding because of verses like these. And so we'd read these and say, okay, well, um, you know, I've made my commitment to Christ, but did I, did I really make it? And if I didn't, then there's going to be an opportunity at the end of this service for me to come forward and offer it again. So I make sure that I don't be live in violation of these verses. But you would have said, these verses have to be explained away because of the conception I have of what happens at the moment that you first believe. Yeah. They have to be interpreted in a different way. And I'm I'm resisting the temptation to go into that because we've already done that. That was part of we've the done it. We've done it. Okay. But I'm just saying that here was this tension that I was living in. Okay. And here's what I found that is in my study of um, the Catholic faith along the way. This is what I found. And I think that this may be the easiest way for a Protestant to grasp the essential difference between the Roman Catholic and the Reformation doctrines of just justification. I found that if I simply imagined, I mean, even, even if only for the sake of argument, because this doctrine of justification is held so strongly and so deeply, okay, it's the core. But I found that if I simply imagined that maybe this doctrine of imputation really was brand new with Luther and the gang, and that it isn't biblical, that it was a mistake and then it needs to be erased, as it were. If I just pulled this doctrine of imputation out of the New Testament biblical theological picture, if I just took this wrench, as it were, and I pulled it from the gears and just discarded it, as Dr. Robert Gundry says I should, everything else would pretty much fall into place, okay? All these passages would kind of just settle down and fall into place. All at once, this path of salvation could be viewed as a true path. The encouragements of the New Testament could be viewed as true encouragements. The warnings could be viewed as true warnings. I began to see really this beautiful continuity in Scripture extending all the way from the beginning, from Abel to Noah to Abraham to Moses to Isaiah and Jeremiah to John the Baptist to Jesus himself, and on to St. Paul, this, this great, beautiful continuity. One clear message, which I could state like this, turn from the idols that you have trusted and put your trust in Christ. Walk in obedience to his commandments. The Lord is merciful and kind, and he will give you everything you need to walk this path and persevere to the end and inherit the promises. But you must walk the path. So Paul Thigpen talks about this in the sense that, that that picture that you just said of what Noah and Abel and Moses and everything, it's, it's the story of, the, of, of Christianity because it, it's the story of the people of God. Mm-hmm. You know, this is, this is how mm-hmm. God worked with his people, you know, that they had to continue to walk. And when they messed up, God called them on it and called them back to himself and created mechanisms for them to return to themselves. But again, I'm skipping yeah. ahead. Yes, I'm yes, skipping yes. ahead, Ken. Okay. Another way to say it is I began to see the new covenant, not as some kind of reversal of the old covenant, as though in the new covenant we find out, oh, you know, forget about all that. God's going a new direction. He's leading us in a new way. Okay. I began to see the new covenant not as some kind of reversal of the old, but as its true fulfillment, its full flowering and fulfillment. The sacrifice of Christ fulfills then, it fulfills the types 
and shadows of the old covenant sacrificial system, which could never truly um, provide atonement for sins. And, and here's the thing we're talking about, when it comes to what God requires of his people, when it comes to what God calls, of his, calls his people to do, the essential difference I was coming to see between the old covenant and the new covenant is not that in the old covenant obedience was required, obedience is a condition for receiving God's promise, and in the new covenant it's not. You know, that is, has been a done way with. The essential difference between the two is that in Christ, the ability is given for us to do what the old covenant required and that we can't in our own natures do. Moses was the very first to promise this, in fact, Matt, in Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 6, when he said, I mean, standing in the plains of Moab before they even crossed the Jordan into the land, standing there and saying, looking into the future, Moses and saying in Deuteronomy 30, verse 6, the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul in order that you may live. And then after that, as we've seen, this is throughout the prophets, especially Jeremiah and Ezekiel and so many other places. And in a nutshell, this is the Catholic doctrine of justification. This is the Catholic view of how salvation takes place. The forgiveness of sins, on the one hand, and the ability, all of it by God's grace, to trust him, faith, to do what he commands, obedience, to persevere along this path and live, see life, reap the reward of eternal life, as Paul says in Galatians 6 again. This is the Catholic doctrine in its essence. And this is a doctrine that uh, a lot of people don't realize from outside the church that this is what the church actually teaches. This is a, something actually that a lot of Catholics don't even realize how this is all laid out. And so often um, people from the Reformed tradition or people from my particular tradition, the Wesleyan-Arminian holiness tradition, reject it because either A, uh, we asked a Catholic about it and they told us something very different than what you just told me, all right? Or uh, we watch it in the films and we think, well, this is just something where they have to go to the DMV uh, version, uh, the, the Catholic version of the DMV, which is the confessional, and then they're absolved. And like they, they ha we have this whole series in our mind of things that seem like disconnected and arbitrary when in fact they're all part of this trajectory, this piece, this core essential understanding of yeah. what it means for God to be in relationship with his people. Yeah, and I I got to say I I've never had the DMV forgive me for anything. No, but as a matter of fact, they pile, they pile sin upon they they carry burdens. They yeah. pile burdens on me that they themselves are unwilling to lift a finger to help me bear. Th that is that is uh, well said. Matt, that is well said. I think we could probably stop the episode with <laughs> with that. It's hey, but that also opens a door to a discussion I don't want to have about how poorly catechized many Catholics are. Because I'm not stating anything strange. And as we go on next week, too, I'm going to support this in different ways. But this is essentially the Catholic view of how it of how it takes place. It's the forgiveness of sins rooted in Christ, one sacrifice of atonement, and God giving us the ability, not reversing the course so that we don't have to you know, trust and obey, but giving us the ability to trust, to obey, to persevere to the end. Okay, now in this series, you and I have looked at how this path of salvation, I'll call it this road, you know, this... Um, this path to be persevered in, how it's illustrated throughout the Old Testament. We've looked a number of times at the life of Noah. We've looked at the life of Abraham. We've looked at Moses. We've looked at Naaman the Syrian. We, we've looked at a lot of different people. In both of these, though, and on, that is in all these cases, I should say, these Old Testament examples had to persevere in faith and obedience in order to receive the promised blessing. 
In neither case, I want to point out, in neither case were these people assured of the promised blessing at the moment they first believed. There's no case in which the promised blessing of God was legally credited to them at the beginning. We see this illustration of a path in all of their lives, or illustrated in all of their lives. Okay? Um, another thing, though, that is clear that I want to set out, because this applies this importantly, another thing that is clear from the narratives is that God didn't require perfection of them. Not perfect faith, not perfect obedience. Rather, the God who called Noah and Abraham, Moses, would later reveal himself to Moses as a God who is, you can almost you can almost quote it right off the top of your head, a God who is rich in kindness and mercy, showing love and forgiveness and keeping covenant with those who love him and keep his commandments. And it never meant those who perfectly love God and perfectly keep his commandments. So long as Noah, so long as Abraham could say, Lord, I believe, help thou my unbelief, like the that the stumbling sinner on his way to Christ in the New Testament. As long as they could say, Lord, I believe, help thou my unbelief, God would forgive their failings, and he would speak of them as those who have loved him and kept his commandments, okay? So, Noah and Abraham, great illustrations of what the path of salvation looks like. But the best illustration of all in the Old Testament is the illustration provided by the story of the Exodus and the journey of Moses and the children of Israel through the wilderness to the promised land. This is the ultimate type, the ultimate foreshadowing, the ultimate prefigurement, the ultimate illustration of this path of salvation that we're discussing, okay? And in the, and in the remainder of our time here, that, that's what I want us to look at. I want to use the, the, this story of the Exodus and the journey of God's people to the land to illustrate the basic structure of Catholic teaching on salvation as a path that we must walk. And, and in all this, you're going to talk a lot about um, the way that you and I understood this whole question of salvation as Protestants, even though we came from different theological camps, as what must I do to be saved? And that's an important question. Mm -hmm. But looking at the Exodus reminds us that it's never just about Ken. It's never just about Matt. What's going to be going on in this story is not, not even just about Moses. It's about these people that God has called. And that is, I think, a part of this that we're going to continue mm -hmm. to discuss more and more and more. Um, but the fact that this is not an individualistic approach to salvation that you're about to unpack. Right, right, right. And, okay, well, let's start then, because it starts squarely with Christ. What's the first thing that happened is that atonement was made. The story of the Exodus begins with the Passover. God, through Moses, commands the people to offer the sacrifice of the lamb, to spread its blood on the doorposts and lintels of their home, to cook the lamb and to eat it, and we'll discuss that later, <laughs> to cook the lamb and to eat it if they trust God, that is God's word to them through Moses, and if they do what God has told them to do, the angel of death is going to pass over their home. Now, in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul tells us that Christ is our true Passover lamb. He is the lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world, sacrificed for us so that the blessings of the new covenant might be poured out on us. 
that is the forgiveness of sins, and the ability to love God and keep his commandments and live. So important to state, this is where it all begins, the story of salvation. It begins with the Passover lamb. Okay, but it doesn't end there. And this is where, you know, um, this is where the Catholic view of salvation as a path comes, begins to stand forth in living color for us. It doesn't end there. The promised land is not legally credited to Moses and the Israelites as soon as they sacrifice the Passover lamb and spread the blood. That's not how it happens. From here, the Israelites have to walk out of Egypt. They have to cross the Red Sea. And this is where, as St. Paul puts it in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 2, this is where they are baptized into Moses. Exodus 14, 21 and 22 describes it. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and all that night the Lord drove the sea back with a strong east wind and turned it into dry land. The waters were divided, and the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground. This was um, the baptism of the people of God into Moses. And if you kind of think about it theologically, or in terms of the illustration, I would say the type, what's being taught here. This is the point at which the Israelites really pass from bondage to freedom. They leave Egypt, but the Pharaoh's chasing them. It's when they cross the Red Sea and when the waters close in on Pharaoh, his horsemen, his chariots, and all of that. This is, as it were, the point at which they really passed from a life of slavery to a life of freedom, from one world to another. This is where their slave masters were put to death and defeated. And it's the same for you and me. Because again, this is the illustration from the Old Covenant. This is the type that has its fulfillment in the New. In Ezekiel chapter 36, which you and I have read you know, 10 different times, we hear of God's promise of looking forward to the New Covenant through Ezekiel, where he says, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I'll take out these hearts of stone that, that exist within you now, and I will give you hearts of flesh. I'll put my spirit within you, and I will move you to keep my commandments. Well, in the New Testament, according to St. Paul, these promises were ultimately fulfilled, the promises of Ezekiel in baptism. This is what Paul says in Romans chapter 6. How can we who died to sin live in it? Because people are asking, well, hey, you know, maybe may we should keep on sinning. Paul says, I'm quoting again, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death so that as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal bodies. He's saying, don't let sin continue to reign in your bodies because you have died with Christ in baptism and you've been raised to a new life. Like the Israelites passed through the water and they passed from death to life, from bondage in Egypt to freedom. 1 Corinthians 6.11, but you were washed, Paul says, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. And then one more, Titus 3, 4, and 5, where Paul says, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Not because of deeds done by us in righteousness. No, we, we didn't earn it. But in virtue of his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal in the Holy Spirit. And this is all very tied into what's happening with the Israelites because they are saved from the land of Egypt, but they have to walk with the Lord to get to the promised land. And along the way, not all of them follow the agenda. Yeah, know? so far, I mean, yeah, so far the Passover lamb must be slain. 
and they must walk out, and they must cross the Red, Red Sea and receive their baptism. But what comes next in the story? Okay, from the Red Sea, if you continue to read in the book of Exodus, from there, the children of Israel are led by the Spirit of God into the desert to be tried and tested, so that in order that they might learn to trust and obey. Here's what the passage says. It's in Exodus chapter 13, 20 through 22. By day, the Lord went ahead of them by a pillar of cloud to guide them on their way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, so that they could travel by day or by night. Neither the pillar of cloud by day nor the pillar of fire by night left its place in front of the people. And so in a, in a really tangible image, God gave his people light by which to make this journey through the wilderness. In fact, we learn in another passage that the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire never left the people for 40 years led them. That's something you kind of forget when you're reading the stories, you know, through Exodus and through Numbers. You kind of forget that this pillar of cloud and fire never, never left them. It led them the entire 40 years until the day when they crossed the Jordan into the promised land. And it's the same for us, which is which is really a statement of, of God's grace, I see again. I mean, think about it. He gave them a method, the blood of the Passover lamb, that they could escape the angel of death. And then he, by his grace, Moses sticking his staff out into the air, you know, and the east wind blows and divides the water. He leads them through the Red Sea, their baptism, from the life of slavery to a life of freedom. And then he comes and in a tangible way begins to lead them through a wilderness for 40 years that they would be, that they could be tied, uh, tried, tested, learn to trust God, learn to obey God. And again, by his grace, he led them the whole way. He didn't just send them out there. It's sort of like, hey, find your way. I hope you get there. He led them. Yeah. And again, it's the same for us. If you ask, you know, how did God save the people of Israel? Was it through an event or through a process? Well, the answer is yes. Right? Yeah. <laughs> he saved That's them through an event, uh, but he also saved them through a process. Yeah. Salvation is God's grace. I mean, it's all of God's grace. And yet they're completely involved in this trusting, obeying, persevering. And it's, it's the same for us because we trust in Christ, our Passover lamb, to provide the forgiveness of sins. In baptism, as Paul said, we receive the power to live a life of faith and obedience and to persevere in that to the end. And then, led by the Holy Spirit, you and I launch out on our journey through the wilderness of this world, the spiritual wilderness of this world, to the promised land of eternal life. And in this process, that's a good word you used, in this process, we're, we're tried, we're tested, we grow in grace and knowledge, we learn to trust and obey so that we might persevere to the end. Again, it's process. And you know what? We're going to have to rattle off a few now, Matt, because if we had the time, we could go on to elaborate a number of other parallels between the story of the Exodus and the New Testament depiction of salvation as a path. And we'll just kind of like quickly list a few. For instance, God gave his people Israel supernatural food and drink to nourish them on their journey. They were hungry. They were thirsty. He provided supernatural food, supernatural drink, manna from heaven and water from a rock. So um, let me ask you a tough question. What supernatural food and drink has God given us, his new covenant people, 
to nourish us on our journey. Well, in the Catholic Church, it's the Eucharist uh, again. I mean, that's that's pretty easy answer to that question. Outside, I would have said, well, you know, the Word of God, right? But in the Catholic Church, there's a tangible, concrete thing that is a fulfillment of what you're just saying. Yeah. Yeah, you know, that that's exactly right. We're not going to go into this in detail because when we're done with this series on sola fide, we're going to do a series on the Eucharist next. But but you're right. If someone had asked me, what is the fulfillment in the new covenant of the typology of the manna from heaven and the water from the rock in the old covenant, I guess I would have said, well, in the Lord's Supper, we have bread and we have grape juice. <laughs> um, but that's just another type. You know, that's another symbol. If someone said, yeah, but what's the fulfillment of those things? What is the fulfillment? I guess I would have said sermons, you know, good sermons, yep. uh, you know, reading great sermons and good books and learning. That's how I'm fed. Um, anyway, we'll come back to that. But but I'm just saying there, there are more parallels. You know, they received supernatural food and drink to nourish them on the way. That's another grace that God gave them. Another one was this. He led them to Mount Sinai by the pillar of cloud and the fire at night, where he gave them his commandments, and he taught them how to live in obedience, another grace. And in the new covenant, we've been given the same. We've been given the law of Christ. And then when right, right before our Lord leaves the earth, he talks about obedience. He says to his apostles, his disciples, go and make disciples of all nations, teaching them to obey everything I have taught you. And I think that's interesting right there. He doesn't say, go and make disciples of all nations, teaching them to accept Christ as their personal Savior and believe the gospel, although those are true. We do those. But the focus, teaching them to obey everything that I've taught you, it's still faith and obedience in the parallel and in the fulfillment. And then finally, and we'll sum these all together, but God gave his people the tabernacle, he gave them the priesthood, and he gave them a sacrificial system a detailed sacrificial system, so that throughout their journey to the promised land, when they sinned, they could bring their sacrifice to the priest, they could confess their sin, they could offer the sacrifice, they could receive atonement, and they could be forgiven. And in the new covenant, well, we have the fulfillment of that. We have the one sacrifice for sins, Jesus Christ, to which we can return again and again and again by direct prayer to God. And as Catholics, in serious sin, to the to the uh, sacrament of reconciliation, but it's a fulfillment. But the but the point is, if, as a process, we can return to this sacrifice again and again and again to receive pardon and to receive cleansing along this path to the um, to the inheritance. And as you've just mentioned here with the Eucharist, again, we're going to go into that in much much more detail, uh, and actually a whole series on that down the road. And with uh, the sacrament of reconciliation, those are things that, uh, you know, are going to freak out some of our uh, viewers who are not really on board with those pieces. But you just laid out the shape, the shape of how this is supposed to work. Mm -hmm. You know, that, that, you know, for instance, with baptism, baptism fulfills circumcision. Circumcision, baptism is, is fulfilled in our sacramental uh, system. The manna in the desert fulfilled in the Eucharist. Um, so that that's moves to that. Uh, so we don't do the manna anymore. We don't keep manna in jars. We don't go out and collect it every morning. Um, you know, the same thing with the sacrificial system that is fulfilled so that we don't have to go and take sheep to church every Sunday or, or right. once a year. But there is no peace 
that says, okay, we used to obey and now we do this thing instead of obeying because obedience was taken away with the old covenant. So we know that obedience was part of the old way that God dealt with his people. Faith and obedience is the new way that God continues to deal with his people. That's the shape. That and is around the shape. that, around that, we figure out all the other details. Yeah. And what we're going to do, you know, over the next week or two, actually, we're going to go on to describe the Catholic doctrine of salvation, justification in more detail and from different angles. But you're exactly right. What I wanted to do this week, Matt, was simply paint a picture, was kind of sketch out the basic shape, as the word you're using, of the Catholic view. And I wanted to explain it in terms of scripture, because that's where I was coming from. And this is how I came to see it in terms of the biblical theology itself. And to see it, I, I kind of sum it together like this. I, I think that all that one really has to do is think hard about the idea that the new covenant is the fulfillment of the old, not its reversal, not God sending off his people in a new direction. Hey, back then you had to trust and obey. Now you don't. Now you do something different. But the fulfillment, or I, I think I use the word, the full flowering of what we see in type and shadow, prefigurement in the Old Testament. Um, I think that all you have to do to really see the shape of the Catholic view is think of the Old Covenant story of the Exodus and the journey as a type, as something that foreshadows our spiritual exodus, our spiritual journey to the, the eternal promised land that is that is set before us in the New Testament. And, and uh, it, it Ken, seems before, to me... Yeah, I was oh, going to say, Ken, Ken, before you go into this, I just want to point out to our listeners that as you're going to go into kind of like the Catholic take on justification. There are some of our listeners who have spent their whole life thinking that the Catholic take is some like man-made system of damning system of works righteousness, as we've been talking right. about, you know, that we're going to get into all these, you know, papal bulls and encyclicals and uh, accruements and barnacles on the sides of the ship. Yeah. But what you're about to say is going to sound shockingly scriptural when you start elucidating the Catholic position that, to people who've never really heard it kind of laid out before. Yeah, and yeah, I know it was shockingly I, scriptural when I absorbed it for the first time. I'm like, yeah, really? what this I want to say here to, yeah. to kind of recap this thing, what I want to say is that this seems to be how St. Paul thought about the relationship between the Old Testament and the New. And we look again at 1 Corinthians chapter 10 because it's such a revealing passage. In this passage, Paul explicitly makes the connection between the story of the Exodus and the Christian's story, our story. This is what Paul says. I want you to know, brethren, and remember, he's writing to the city of Corinth, a thoroughly Gentile city in Greece in the first century. So these are mainly Gentile converts. Primarily, they're going to be Gentile converts. I want you to know, brethren, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and the sea. And they all ate the same supernatural food and all drank the same supernatural drink, for they drank from the supernatural rock which followed them, and that rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Okay, stop. Okay, ding, stop ding, right ding, there. you can lose your salvation. <laughs> yeah, stop right there. Paul is saying, I want you to know that our fathers, he's pointing back to this story of the Exodus and the people of Israel coming out of slavery and crossing the... I mean, obviously, that's the story that he's pointing to. And what he's saying to Gentile hearers, his Gentile readers, he's saying, hey, look, they had their baptism. They were baptized into Moses. They had their supernatural food and drink. Wow, I wonder what that hints at in terms of 
<laughs> what we have in the New Testament, because he's basically saying, hey, they had their supernatural food and drink. I read between the lines, just like you do, just like we do. And yet, God was not pleased with most of them. Most of them were overthrown in the wilderness. They didn't make it to the end. And then Paul goes straight to his readers and says, these things are written as warnings for us. And he, he goes on, I, I didn't want to read such a long passage, but he, he goes on to describe some of the sins. Don't be idolaters like them. Don't do this. Don't do like they did. These things are written as warnings for us. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. There's another passage that makes no sense in terms of the tension I was describing earlier. But then he gives hope. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your strength, but with the temptation will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Paul is saying flat out, the road that we walk, the path we walk, it is just as real. It's just as concrete as the path that they walked. Yes, theirs was a typological path. Ours is the fulfillment of it, but ours is no less real. And just think, summarize the parallels again. They were delivered out of a literal slavery in Egypt. We are being delivered out of slavery to sin and death. They were baptized into Moses. We are baptized into Christ. The fulfillment of that image, they were delivered in a literal way from slavery in their baptism to freedom. In our baptism, we are delivered from slavery to sin to freedom to walk in newness of life as those resurrected from the dead. They had a pillar of cloud by day and fire by night to lead them until they reached their inheritance. We have the Spirit of the living God to lead us until we reach ours. They had to cross a literal wilderness. We're, we're talking scorpions, lizards, snakes, burning heat, blistering feet. They had to horny walk toads. There were yeah, horny, horny toads, toads out there. Watch out for those. I will. They had to cross a literal wilderness. We cross what? I mean, the, the whole New Testament's filled of it. A spiritual wilderness in which the, the devil prowls about like a roaring lion seeking whom to, to devour. They had to persevere in faith and obedience, and so do we. It's really a quite simple picture. The new covenant is the fulfillment. And on the side of blessing, remember, God gave the Israelites everything they needed to make their journey. Everything. Led them by the pillar, gave them manna, gave them food, gave them a system of sacrifice by which they could receive forgiveness of sins when they he gave them everything needed and i love the fulfillment of this as it's stated in second peter chapter 1 verse 3 where peter says god has given to us everything we need for life and godliness supernatural food and drink forgiveness when we fall so i put it like this matt so long as we want to enter eternal life we can is so so long as I'll, I'll make it personal to you. So long as you are able to say to God, "I believe, help my unbelief," or "Lord, I love you, help me to love more." I obey, help me to be more obedient. As long as you can say this, as long as you want to reap the harvest of eternal life, you can, and you will. That whole reading between the lines mm -hmm. thing in First Corinthians ten, where Paul says. Our fathers were baptized into Moses. Our fathers had supernatural food and drink, and some of them even fell away. Now, I'm telling you this is a warning. It's his way, if you read between the lines, he's saying, you were baptized, and you have supernatural food and drink, and you can fall away. 
I mean, it's as clear as the nose on your face. Now, we can draw the lines to say what supernatural food and drink means and what baptism is all about later. Uh, we've already talked about baptism in a longer series, but suffice to say, and to paraphrase and borrow from another Paul, there are at least 50 ways to lose your salvation. So watch out and be careful <laughs> yeah. and uh, realize that this is not a granted. You, this is not a situation where you can just coast on your baptism and coast on the fact that you were delivered from the land of Egypt. You got to walk in relationship or else you stand the chance of being like some of those Israelites who never made it to the promised land. It's just like the author of Hebrews says, is as long as it is still called today, keep encouraging each other every day so that you are not hardened by the deceitfulness of sin so that you don't fall away. For we will share in Christ if we hold firmly till the end the confidence we had at the first. You know, and I, I guess my closing statement is simply that this is the Catholic, this is the shape of the Catholic doctrine of salvation is to simply say, look at the Exodus, look at the journey to the promised land. This is the type. The reality in Christ is the fulfillment of that type. It's not a different path. It's not in a different kind of path. It's the fulfillment of this. The supernatural, the supernaturally Holy Spirit charged, if you will, fulfillment of that pattern in our lives. And if you go to an Easter mm-hmm. vigil like the one that I was at when I was received into the church in 2005, you'll hear every single part of that story that Ken just mentioned read in a row, and then people are baptized mm-hmm. and receive communion. It's a That's fascinating thing uh, to, to behold. But it, we're going to talk more about what the Catholic Church actually teaches and how we gave the shape, we gave we put up the tree, and then we're going to put the ornaments on it in subsequent discussions. Well so, said. So Ken... Thank you again, as always. It's always an invigorating discussion. Thank you. uh, Yeah, it's great to talk to you every week. All right. Until next time, check us out at chnetwork.org. Again, that's chnetwork.org for the Coming Home Network. And subscribe and tell your friends to do the same. We'll talk to you next week. Amen. Amen.